Colossians 2 and verse 14 is where we turn this morning, focusing on the cancellation. This is good. We Sometimes we don't, this, in this cancel culture, we don't like to talk about cancellation, but this is a good context. This is a good uh, truth that we can look at in Colossians 2 and verse 14. There is a hymn, one of the, one of the good hymns, there are many good hymns, of course, but uh, It Is Well With My Soul, verse 3, speaks about, and lest I forget, um, it says, My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It, or, how does it go? It is well with my soul. He speaks about, that uh, author speaks about this reality, as mentioned in Colossians 2 and verse 14, that our sin, not just a little bit of it, not just the the, the high-handed sin, but everything has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you realize the great burden that Christian or Pilgrim at the time was was carrying. It was the weight of his sin, the guilt of his sin. And when he went to Calvary, that weight rolled off his back and disappeared into the cave, the tomb, as it were, of of Jesus there at Calvary. And so that is what we celebrate this morning. That's what we celebrate in this text this this uh, this, this morning. Colossians 2 and verse 8, I'll begin reading through verse 15, just to help us remember the, the context of it. It's really saying, pay attention to Christ. Don't let anyone distract you from the glories that are in Christ and who he is. Verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form or bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, which was a, uh, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. We've looked at this passage very carefully, I think, I hope, as we studied last week about having graciously, God has graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, all of our sins, all of our, uh, whether small and in any, in any perspective, any kind of sin is, is disobedience to God, it's rebellion against God, whether it's a sin of omission, we just didn't do it, maybe we didn't know we were supposed to do it, but we didn't do it, or a, a, co- a commission, we did it, and maybe even a you know deliberate rebelliousness that we just didn't want at all, God has graciously, graciously forgiven us, he's canceled that, that debt, and verse 14 builds on that idea, and it speaks about the legality of it. How in the world can God forgive us? And how can we have this salvation, this forgiveness of sins? Well, he canceled out the certificate of debt. You think, well, I didn't know I was in debt. I didn't know that I was somehow uh, got a loan from God. What is this even about? And when did that happen? I don't remember signing anything. Well, there are two ways I guess we could think about it. And that is that we are made by God. He owns us. He's the creator. And for us then to disavow the creator, like it says in Romans 1, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, that's treason. That is violent aggression against the only true God. 
And so there's, that's enough to condemn us. If we disobey God's righteous judgments, uh, righteousness, just himself, we owe him because he created us. He is our master. He is our designer. We owe our allegiance to him, but also because he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for us to say, well, I don't think I need Jesus. I think I can do this by my own big self. I think I can live a life that's good enough for God. You know, if it's good enough for 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 me, then God ought to accept it. And even if he didn't, I think my good works outweighed my bad works. That's not how it works. You break one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Well, I didn't sin that much, you sinned. So the, the soul that sins shall surely die. Uh, after our death is judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. Well, so we're in debt to God. We owe him. Or if you don't mind thinking of it in terms of a fine or a penalty, a, a monetary um, a requirement for us, having been judged as guilty sinners, we've got to pay the fine. We've got to do the time. We've got to do something. But here it says he canceled out that certificate of debt. He canceled it out. This idea of canceling is elsewhere translated as, actually, it's talked about as plastering. You ever plastered something? And you think, plaster? Well, there's there's like drywall or in the old school, you know, putting, you know, covering for walls, right? In the Old Testament, back in Leviticus, is it, or Numbers? No, it's in, yeah, Leviticus. talks about replastering a house. It had kind of a disease or mildew or mold or something growing in, and they had to scrape off certain stuff and then replaster it. You cover over that. And you, you get the idea that, oh, having canceled out can refer to something that is covering or, in other words, blotting out something. There was this curious law in uh, Numbers that talked about a man who was kind of jealous that maybe his wife had committed adultery, and uh, there's this whole process in Numbers 5 that would give a test to prove that. And one of the um, parts of that protocol was for the priest to write uh, words of a curse on a scroll, a piece of parchment, and then wash off that writing into water, and then that water was supposed to be um, uh, taken by the the woman and and uh, and the the judgment of God would would fall upon her if she was guilty and if not then it'd be fine. But that idea of washing off that writing that was on the parchment is this idea of canceling or blotting out. We read about this idea in a kind of a more magnificent passage. This is Genesis uh, seven and uh, again in, in chapter nine it talks about God blotting out or canceling all life that has breath in its lungs. I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. Whoa, and we're talking about the flood. God blotted out, which is to say he destroyed it. There was nobody living except those eight, let me get my fingers right, those eight survivors, and of course the, the ark full of creatures, animals, that God brought to them to survive the flood. But he blotted out, and it repeats it. That's verse four. It says that in verse uh, 13 that... God blotted out, verse 23, excuse me, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Blotting out is a rather destructive idea. Now it can be used, to, of course, as we talked about plastering a wall, but here it's, it's blotting out with destruction and, and ruination and death. There is a more... Uh, intangible idea, and that is blotting out the memory of someone. The scripture talks about uh, Moses asked, you know, uh, he 
in Exodus 32, one of the sinful times of the Israelite people. <coughs> Moses said, now, if you will, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book. Either forgive them or just kill me and, and forget about me because this is too heavy. If not, please blot me out from your book, which you've written. And Yahweh said to Moses, whoever sins against me, I will blot him out of my book. Oh, so now we get more to the idea. God is a judging God. God is a righteous judge. And he, he knows we can't confuse him. We can't think we can't somehow present uh, the fact that we are we're righteous when we're not. He knows he will blot out uh, every person who sins against him. Deuteronomy 9 has a similar idea that uh, God wanted to blot out the, their name, the name of the Israelites who had sinned against him, and he promised to make a nation out of Moses, which, of course, he didn't do, and that would introduce issues because Moses wasn't of the tribe of Judah. He was a tribe of Levi, so how did that even work, and so forth. But we won't go into all that. God relented concerning that calamity upon him. There's other passages that talk about blotting out and and um, not remembering. For example, Psalm 69 says, May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Kind of like what the children recited in Psalm 1. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, or the congregation of the righteous. Uh, that's a promise. And we think, oh, you know, God has been so kind and so patient, and he'll never bring judgment upon the nation, certainly not upon me. I'm a good person. Do you remember Psalm 130, uh, verses 3 and 4, and talks about, Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, Lord, who could stand? Well, God does keep a record of wrongs. In fact, we'll see it in just a moment. In Revelation 20, when that record of wrongs, wrong deeds, sinful actions, when th those books, and because it's plenty of books, and you imagine how many books it would take to record all the sinful activities of men from Adam and Eve to the whenever Christ comes in that time, when those books are opened, the wicked will be judged according to their works, which are recorded in that book. If the Lord were to keep a record of those sins, Lord, who could stand? To borrow the colloquialism, ain't nobody going to stand before God. In their righteousness, we'll be judged. We will be judged according to our works. And yet we see, even in this passage, having canceled out that certificate of debt, we see this uh, this truth, Psalm 51, a psalm of David, a psalm of confession, a psalm of comfort. He says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Can you imagine to have that hope that somehow that record of wrongs done or record of, of sins could somehow be erased? Maybe just wash off that ink into the, into the, in the dust and, and just let's just move on, shall we? Forget about that. And David says, God, please do that. Be gracious. Not because I'm so good or I'm so wonderful. Or you promised to make a nation, you know, dynasty and all this. No. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, your mercy. It's not something that is owed us. We are owed death and destruction. And yet David had reason to say, Lord, blot out, cancel, remove my transgressions. The, uh, later in that psalm, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Well, that's the truth. That's a comforting thing. I mean, the longer you live, the longer your list of sins, if you were writing them down yourself, the more you have to confess, the more you have to say, wow, Jesus died for that too. 
Jesus paid my fine. God is able to blot out, blot out all my iniquities. Isaiah 43, the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out or blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Wait a minute. God, I thought God would, he's a holy God and he wants to judge. Well, he is a holy God, but he promised he promised that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He promised to provide a Savior. And so he says, I will wipe out. I'm the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, for my glory, for the glory of my son. I wanted to honor my son. I want all the people to honor Christ. This is for my sake that God blots out sins. And it says at the end of that verse, I will not remember your sins. Well, that's good news. And there are some things that we'd like each one of us to forget. You know, that time when so-and-so or some, such-and-such happened, ah, oh, forget about that. That's, that's a bad time. You know, let's just not dwell on that any longer. God is the one who promises, I will not remember your sins. Now, it's not like God is, is somehow, you know, has a bad memory like most of us. No, he, he remembers perfectly. All people are alive to him, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything is uh, Hebrews 4.12 says everything is naked and laid open before God. It's not like he, somehow he's, he's, he's not aware of these things, but he chooses not to remember those things against us. Uh, he will not bring them to our charge. He will not bring them as an as a indictment against us. They're forgiven. They're removed. Elsewhere it says he has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. There are other examples in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, I think it's Peter who's preaching in Acts 3, and he says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Now we're talking about this idea of sins being wiped away or blotted out. And Peter says, the way that you receive that is by repenting and returning to the Lord, believing in him, believing especially in the Son, the Lord Jesus, whom God has sent. This passage in uh, uh, Revelation 3 speaks about the promise of God not to ever erase a believer's name from the book of life. From Revelation 3 and verse 5, I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There's one other aspect of the wiping away, and I mentioned this last Sunday, I believe, about God himself, who is a righteous judge and yet a merciful judge, one who is not, I mean, he is both holy, he is, as various theologians have called wholly other, W-H, you know, entirely other than us. He's different from us, and yet we're made in his image. There's that reality, but he is somebody who's outside of time, outside of space, beyond our understanding of righteousness. Now, we get our understanding of righteousness from him. Right and wrong, it comes from God himself. And yet he is the one who comes right down into our personal space, if you don't mind. And when he pronounces grace and kindness to us, we stand before him just ashamed and, and appalled at our own sinfulness. Isaiah 6, for example, Isaiah saw the Lord and he just, you know, or as Peter, Peter, when Jesus gave him the great catch of fish, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man. That's the proper response when we have this view of God who is holy. And yet God comes right down and Revelation 7, and again in Revelation 21, which quotes Isaiah 25, this is great, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What tears are there? Why are there tears? Well, it's because of our sinfulness, because, because of our distress. Uh, it is because of our mourning over what we've done with Christ and how we have rebelled against him. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
So here it says again, he, he canceled. He canceled this. He wiped it out. He blotted it out. He, he has erased it. Well, what is it that he erased? Here it says the certificate of debt. The certificate of debt. And we think, okay, I don't know if many of you have signed a loan uh, for either a house or a automobile or a student loan or any kind of uh, thing. There are terms in that loan uh, in, term, in terms of the length of the, uh, you know, the duration of the loan, the monthly uh, payments, the interest rates, maybe some other stipulations, especially if you're um, borrowing for borrow, borrowing money uh, for a house. There are different requirements reg even regarding that house. If there were, you know, stairways and, and inspection requirements and uh, all, the, all this kind of stuff. So those are the terms or it says here, uh, consisting of decrees, which were against us. Well, wait a minute. So the terms of the agreement are there. These decrees are there. And this is a certificate. This is something that is a formal uh, arrangement, a formal agreement between two parties. This this word or this phrase translated the certificate of debt is actually just one word in the Greek and has to do with something that is handwritten. You think, well, there's not much that's handwritten these days. In fact, you can sign a contract digitally, right? You don't even have to put your and pen to paper. And yet in that day, there was such a thing, and it happened more in the medieval period. Well, at least we see evidence of it. It's kind of hard to... There are contracts that we can see from the Old Testament period, you know, the Israelite and, and Persian period and so forth, that would have a, a contract between two parties. It would be handwritten, it would be stamped by some person, stamped by the other person, and it would be, be written in triplicate sometimes. At least duplicate, which they didn't have the carbon copy kind of thing and all that kind of stuff. Sign this copy. It would be one piece of paper. And this is in the medieval period. Be one piece of paper with uh, the contract written on the top and then maybe another copy down below. And between those, there's, there's manuscript evidence of it. In the middle of that it would be written the letters or the word, um, um, handwritten. Chirographon is the, is the word. Be read, read, uh, written right across the, the thing here. And then, the paper would be cut in such a way that the letters of that uh, chirographon would be partially on the top part and partially on the bottom. So then you put those two pieces together, you could see this is a, this is a contract. The one party has it, has this part, the other party has the other part. You bring it together and we prove that this is a legal binding contract and the arrangement is, is so and so and so and such, uh, for so, these people and these are the terms and okay, let's, let's pay it. It's very interesting if you were to read, and it had to do with uh, just any kind of arrangement, whether you're loaning a, a donkey or something to somebody or, or anything, any kind of a legal agreement. There's an example in the apocryphal book, Tobit. Tobit is, uh, I don't know if you read Tobit lately, it's not in our Bibles, but uh, you can read it. And it has um, a telling, and this would be, I'm not sure, this is after the Israelite... Um, the Assyrian expulsion, so after 722, so it's in the in the divided kingdom, you know, 500 or so, 600 BC, and there was evidence of Tobit who had uh, either lent or deposited ten talents. Doesn't say of gold or silver, but ten talents, which is not like skills and abilities, but ten it's money, a lot of money. He entrusted to some other person had a uh, this chirograph and this handwritten document, a certificate of debt, and in the course of time, he asked his son Tobiah. To go and, you know, take this, this paper and go and, and retrieve that money that I deposited with, with this other fellow. And Tobit, uh, records that journey and some other fanciful things 
that goes on, but it indicates, okay, this is what's going on. This is a certificate of debt. This is a, an agreement made between two parties, and these decrees are not so much against us. I mean, they, they're terms of the agreement. We, we assented to them. This is what the one party required. This is what we agree to. And yet it says here that they were against us. Well, how did they become against us? Well, because we didn't abide by them. We didn't fulfill the terms of the contract. We rebelled against God's word, putting it back in that uh, us-to-God perspective. We transgressed the terms of the of the contract, the terms of the agreement. Well, again, how do we do that? Because we didn't worship and serve the, cre- the creator. We served the creature. We served ourselves. We were jealous. We were, we were greedy. We were uh, just living for ourselves. We were listening to the loves of the world and not according to the loves of God. We were, in this passage, listening to the empty philosophy and, and uh, this vain deception that's going on here. We were denying Christ, the, the master who bought us. Uh, Jude talks about that. And yet, here God is able, he is so willing and able to cancel out that certificate of debt which was against us, that was hostile to us. These decrees, the decrees aren't wicked, the decrees aren't evil, but in the context of of God's law, the God, the, the word that God gave to Israel, the Mosaic Covenant, these all these regulations from, from Exodus through Deuteronomy, and think, oh my goodness, all these things? The, the law is holy and righteous. It is good. The problem with the law is us. We can't do it. We cannot do it. The Israelites, I mean, anything proves that the law condemns, just read from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then judges. Oh, how horrible is that? And yet, it wasn't God's requirements that are somehow faulty. It is us. And I, I it's, it's startling to realize Again, Romans, the epistle that Paul wrote to the Romans, is all about this. It's all about the works of the law against the works of grace. And it's all about well, what what role does the law have? These Jews do this, and the Gentiles don't do this. So what's the deal? And he comes to the question uh, this way. I'll just read. In fact, you want to look at it in Romans chapter seven, where Paul identifies this thing that he comments here very briefly, very just almost in passing here in Colossians two. But he spends pretty much two chapters, if not more, in, well, more, because back, getting back in Romans 4 and, and 3 and just all throughout, he's talking about the relationship between the law and grace and our failure to keep the law and our ability to receive forgiveness through God's grace. Romans 7 and verse 7, he says, uh, is the law sin? Is somehow the law uh Worthy of condemnation? Is it somehow uh, faulty or, or just doesn't work? No, he says, may it never be. Rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the Lord not said, you shall not covet. But sin, it's sin, it's the problem. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. It's kind of like that. And he says, don't covet. You shall not covet. But do you ever see a sign that says, don't step on the grass? I mean, what do you want to do? You want to step on the grass. You didn't mean, you didn't need to step on the grass. You have a path over this way. But now that sign says, I can't step on it. Well, who's going to tell me what I can do or can't do? And you want to. Where'd that want come from? It's through the law, through a restriction, through a regulation about somebody else and putting a regulation on me. No, you're not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Apart from the law, sin is dead. He goes on and talks about this. Uh, he says, verse 13, jump down there. He says, therefore, did that which is good, the law, which is good, it's from God, did that become a cause of death for me? No, 
It's not the law. It's me. It is sin in me. Verse 13 says, It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good. Verse 14 says, We know the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. Um, I am, I don't do the things, those things, the things that I ought to do. Verse 16 says, If I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. By our disobedience, we prove the righteousness of the law. It's kind of a contrary way to think, but that's what it is. When you have a, your parent says whatever the parent requires, you realize that's a good commandment. Eat your broccoli or something. That's a good thing, but I didn't want to. And it just, uh, if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law. It's good. God's word is good. My parents' word is good. Uh, and it goes on from there. Verse 22 says, I joyfully, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is my in my members, which is why that circumcision of Christ, the removal of the body of the flesh, that's what we look forward to. At the end of this chapter, it says, uh, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We have a salvation that includes not just our inner man, which is being conformed to Christ, but our outer man also will be made in conformity with Christ. He says, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. And I'd love to read chapter 8, just one couple passages here in verse in chapter 8. Uh, verse 3 says, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law is good, but it's weak because I cannot do it. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did what the law could not do. It cannot justify sinners. But God did it. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law, the, the decrees against us which were hostile to us, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And on it goes down to verse 17. It could read all that stuff. But we see this reality that this certificate of debt, this this if you don't mind it saying, it has become a not just a certificate of debt, but a a um, indictment against us because we didn't do that term of the law, we didn't do that term of the law, we didn't do that agreement. We we are so rebellious, and this goes on and on. We are guilty of God's judgment. We have a guilty verdict. This again, the problem is not the terms of the agreement; it's my failure to abide by them. Here it says, having canceled out. God canceled this out. But as I mentioned, Revelation 20, at the great great white throne, God will judge. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will judge. If you want to turn to there's Revelation 20 and verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And here it is, verse 12. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Well, that's old school. Why not digital? Or why not just, uh, well, microfiche? How many, how many, you ever heard of microfiche, some of the kids? These are books. These are handwritten documents. What do they record? We'll see what they recorded. It says, books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. What was recorded in those books? Their deeds, and not the good ones, the bad ones, which far outweighed the the uh, good ones that might claim to have done. Notice it says, nobody escaped 
God's judgment, not those that were in the sea or in Hades. No, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death, dead which were in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Oh, mercy. You don't want to be judged according to your deeds. Escape that. Run to Christ. Cancel. Christ can cancel this, this certificate of debt. Christ is able to deliver those. And it says, verse 14, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whoa. This is what God's judgment is like. If we do not receive this cancellation of our debt, we're going to pay for our sins. We are going to uh, do that forever. Thrown into the lake of fire. Was never intended for humanity. What does Jesus say? This was the lake of fire or the fire of hell that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Mankind was never intended to live there, and yet rebellion, Adam and Eve rebelled. And it's interesting, if you if you think of your chronology, uh, uh, last time's chronology, the first person to be cast in the lake of fire is the Antichrist, and then the false prophet. And they're there for a thousand years. And then finally, after that, Satan himself is cast in the lake. He's the third person to be cast in the lake of fire and all of his demons. And then, oh, the, the hell, the, the judgment place gets filled up with innumerable souls from the time of creation until the last days. And Christ will be vindicated. Lest we think, oh, it's not so bad. It's not a big deal. God is able to forgive. He'll, he grades on a curve. And, you know, nobody's righteous. It's interesting how different people will, will say, uh, you know, everybody sins or everybody lies or everybody steals or everybody does this. Well, do you do it? Oh, yeah, 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 I do it. But everybody does it. So it's not that big of a deal. It is a big of a deal. You want to be like everybody? You want to be receiving God's judgment? then you proceed the way that you're doing. You don't look to Christ. You don't realize that that certificate of debt can be canceled. This certificate, uh, many times in Scripture, the wages of sin are discussed. We see, for example, Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, 2 Peter 2 also talks about the wages of unrighteousness, uh, and God is the one who meets out judgment. He's not fooled by anything. He keeps an accurate record. And we think, you know, we sometimes when, when our wages are, are are good, we say, you know, sometimes we want to fudge the numbers, say we worked a little bit more than we actually did, so we get paid more. Well, this is one time you don't want to get paid more than what is, is owed you. This wage of sin is death. You're going to receive that. You're going to receive the full measure of that. But you can also receive the cancellation of that in full measure, not just in part, but the whole thing. Jesus himself talks about sin in terms of a debt, something that is owed to God. He says, he teaches us to pray, in fact. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we think, are we talking money? Are we talking, because I loaned some money to this person and, and I didn't loan anything to God, but how, okay, well, forgive me anyway. Um, but that's in Matthew's telling of the sermon of the prayer, but in Luke's telling of it, he says, forgive us our sins, for we also have uh, forgiven everyone who is indebted to us. And so there's that uh, parallel idea that debts are sin, and sin is a debt that we uh, owe to God. Uh, Matthew 18, you can write this down, Matthew 18, 21 to 35, in the context of forgiveness, and Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Uh, seven times? 
thinking that he was really being generous. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And he told a story about uh, two servants who owed some money and how that didn't happen. And it was a debt. And the, the master forgave the debt of the one. And then you can read all about that. And he says, verse 35, and this ought to frighten us a little bit. God will not forgive those. He will not forgive us unless we forgive other people. Which is to say, put it the other way, if we have been forgiven by God, then we ought to forgive other people. We ought to be the most forgiving people on the planet. Other examples Jesus told about debtors. A moneylender had two debtors. And uh, when both of them were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? The master. This is Luke 7. And, of course, the one who has been forgiven more would love more. Uh, this this idea of uh, debt or reconciliation, also 2 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking about a reconciliation we have, a canceling of the debt that we don't owe this money anymore. It's been canceled. It's been paid to us. Well, how's he done that? It, it Notice it says it was decrees against us, not because the decrees were bad, but because we didn't fulfill them. It was hostile to us. It was it was right up in our face, and it opposed us. It accused us. It says, you did wrong. You didn't do this. Lest we think, well, that, that that's kind of mean. Why, why should they? Why should God throw my sins right in my face? Because you threw your sin right in his face. Because what... Remember what David said against you and you only have I sinned and it was evil in your sight? God is watching. Unless we think, oh, God just, you know, he, he's not even aware. Of what's, he, he's not, doesn't even take any notice. Excuse me, he does. He does. He watches everything and he is the one with whom we will have to do. He is quite aware of all these things, and so we do need to be reconciled to him. We do need to have a righteousness, not in ourselves. This was an accusation against us. It was hostile to us. It was, uh, you know, one of the one of the names of Satan, which is despicable, really. He, he's just wicked in so many different ways. But he is called the accuser of the brethren. And you know, the worst thing about it is, he's right. He is right. He is the accuser of the brethren. I mean, we have everything to be accused of. We're guilty, and yet we're not. So there's that, that tension there. If we're in Christ, we're, we're guiltless. We can't be accused. We are accepted in the beloved. And yet that doesn't stop Satan from trying, reminding us of our sin. Oh, there's no way that God forgive you, can forgive you. You've done too much bad stuff in your life. You're, you're beyond uh, God's ability to forgive. You you just come over on my side. You just hate God. You just curse God and die. Why well, we've heard that before. Uh, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And yet we, in this passage, especially Colossians 2, Paul reminds us our identity is in Christ. Don't try to add to your salvation somehow that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. That You need to keep this law or that law. Don't touch this and make sure you, you keep this Sabbath day or this festival or this new moon or whatever it is. No, Paul says, it has been canceled. It has taken it, it's taken it right out of the way. Like he says there here at the end of the verse. All that stuff against us, which is rightly accusing us, he has taken it out of the way. So not just blotting out or removing the, the writing on that, that paper, if we were to put it in that kind of a very tangible term, not just canceling it out, but also just destroying it, taking it right out of the way. Uh, that, this idea of, of taking it out of the way has to do with when the, Women came to the tomb, the Jesus tomb, and that stone was rolled out of the way. It was not an impediment anymore. It was not an obstacle. They could get right in to where Jesus was. Our indebtedness has been taken out of the way, pushed aside, and separated from us. It is something that is removed and, and uh, um, 
just it's gone. It's not there to be considered anymore. This uh, fantastic idea is that God the Father is the justifier of those who put their faith in him. He is the one who is able to take what is ours. I mean, if there's anything we have can take ownership of, it is our sinfulness. It is our unrighteousness, our guilt before God. And yet he says he took it right out of the way. But where did he put it? He says he, he nailed it or having nailed it to the cross. Oh, so now we come back to this, this hinge pin of history. And that is the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. This whole accusation, this whole in, indictment or a guilty verdict against us is nailed to the cross. You think, how? I don't remember seeing. I mean, are you serious? All those books that are going to be open in Revelation 20, the great white throne, all those books were somehow nailed to the cross. Or even there's one thing other than Jesus' body that was nailed to the cross, and that was his, called a titulus, but the, the, the sign that was above him bearing his verdict. What was the verdict? How was Jesus guilty? Well, he claimed to be king of the Jews. Says this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, we have no king but Caesar, they said, but he was making himself out in opposition to Caesar, which he really wasn't. He made it very clear to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have risen up and fought against you. As it is, uh, that's not how it's going to happen. And you'd have no authority unless it were given to you from heaven. So the accusation against Jesus is not true. Pilate pronounced it that much as well. I find no fault in this man. And yet, that was the accusation born against Jesus. How in the world, then, is our indictment or our guilty verdict nailed to the cross? If you don't mind, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 teaches us, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin. He bore in his body on that tree our sinfulness, our guilty verdict. Isaiah 53 talks about that, that he bore our sins. By his wounds we are healed, we're forgiven. This this whole idea is, is there. But apart from Christ's death, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Somebody has to die for sin. Now, it can be you. You can die for your sin, and God will kill you. He will not say, oh, you... You were, at, you were at liberty that one Sunday. Oh, come on in. I know you didn't like me. No, you didn't appreciate the gospel. I know you didn't trust in Christ, but you were there, and you were in church on that day. No, God will judge according not just appearances, but what's in our heart. Are we given body and soul to Christ? Do we love him? Do we recognize when he died on the cross, his body bore my guilt He died in my place. I can have a substitutionary, sacrificial death that Christ died in my place, this Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. It means that everybody could be saved by looking to the Son. Uh, Jesus said in John 3, unless the Son of Man be lifted up, or the Son of God be lifted up, um, or it says, if the Son of Man be lifted up, that I will draw all men to me, all kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, Anybody can come to Christ and receive this cancellation of debt, this forgiveness, this not just cancellation, but taking it right out of the way, removing the guilt that we have from him. 
This is something that is not a successive thing that happens in salvation, that we have somehow been graciously forgiven us all of our transgressions, and then in addition to that, he has canceled out the certificate of debt. No, it's all one package. If you have this, you have everything. And for us to even to say, well, I, I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's part of the package. It's not an accessory. It's not a bonus. It's not something we need to seek afterwards. If you are baptized in the Spirit, you're with him. Read Romans 8. Talk about more about that, that we our life is in the Spirit. And he's going to talk about that in, in Colossians 3 as well. Our salvation is complete in Christ. We don't need to add to it. Now, we do need to work it out. Philippians 2 talks about working out our salvation. But it's something that is worked out as a reality, not as an aspiration. I, I hope someday I can be saved. No, I am saved. I'm Christ, but I want to work that out. I'm, I'm not as much of a Christian as I want to be. I'm not as conformed to Christ as I want to be. Paul, at the end of, end of his life in Philippians 3, says, I strive, I press on toward that goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to be more like him. It starts with this realization, our sins are taken away. We're dead to that law which condemned us, not because the law was guilty or, or wicked or, or poor or whatever. It's because it identified faults in my own life. You ever get angry at lights? You know, when you turn the lights on and then you see uh, a mouse scurrying across the floor or in Texas cockroaches you know, scurrying to different places or, oh, just how filthy this place is. It is said years and years ago, back in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, when houses are being electrified, not like dangerously, but uh, power, electricity coming to these different houses. Farm wives were just so dismayed that their houses are pig pen, so filthy they didn't realize how dirty their houses were. It's because now we have light that shines in corners they never had light before and into maybe some closets and different things. And when the light comes, the light is not evil, but it identifies and shows, whoa, I've got a problem. We need to have some cleaning up going on here. Again, the problem is not God's word. The problem is not light. The light has come to reveal us, real, real to us. We stand in great debt before God. We stand in judgment before God. But also the light has come to give us life, the life that's in Christ. Look to him. Run to him. Don't be hoodwinked, taken away by other things that would lead you away from Christ. Christ is our answer. I can't wait till we look at the next verse. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them in him. It's going to be good news. But it's just a continuation. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Live that way. Look to Christ. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word. This gives us hope. gives us life. We know that it brings uh, awareness of sin. It brings conviction of sin. It brings knowledge that we are not right. We just need to be corrected. We need to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven by you. And you're so gracious to do that. You're so gracious to forgive, to pardon us, to cancel that certificate of debt, which was against us. It was hostile to us. You took it right out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're grateful for your love expressed by the gift of your son. We're grateful for the son's sacrifice of his own life, of his own honor, as even through people who maligned him and said all kinds of blasphemy against him. Yet he endured it, trusting himself to you who judges righteously. We're so grateful that you even forgave those who put him on the cross. And I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was one who was giving hearty, hearty approval to the death of Stephen. And yet you transformed his life. And all of us who, at one time or another, cursed you and disobeyed you and, and neglected your son and, the, and uh, despised the Holy Spirit, you are the one who saves 
please save. Please save and deliver this warning. We pray that you give assurance of salvation. Sometimes we our, our eyes or our, our view is so much set upon our sinfulness and the need to confess, which is true. And yet we need to look to Christ. He is that perfect Savior, that sacrifice, that we can be accepted in the Beloved. Please help us to be totally consumed and have our mind set on things above where Christ is seated uh, at the right hand of God. Pray that he would come soon because just this world is getting so wicked, wicked, er, more wicked by the day. And yet you are a sufficient Lord. You are the King of Kings. We trust you. We run to you. Pray for your good will to be accomplished even this good day. Please save. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.